A clash of kingdoms is something that captures our imaginations, whether that's a, a fictional clash, like the, a, a Star Wars-esque clash between the Imperial Army and the Rebel Alliance, or whether it's a historical clash that we read about or watch uh, a movie about with uh, two vast armies clashing with one another, whether that's the Battle of Waterloo or the D-Day landings or the Battle of Gettysburg. And still today people discuss the tactics or strategies that won or lost those encounters And here in Acts chapter 12, we have a clash between two kingdoms and two kings. And we see their very different aims, strategies and outcomes. So who are the two kings? Because if you were reading about it, you maybe only saw one king. And certainly one of the kings is easier to see than the other. And he's introduced in verse 1 as Herod the king, uh, the one who persecutes God's people and seeks his own glory. But who's the other king? Because there is another king at work in this chapter. Uh, What's he doing? Well, he's answering his people's prayers. He's sending his angel to rescue Peter. He's striking down Herod. Uh, And he's continuing to spread his word. And that second king is Jesus Christ. In the words of chapter 17 and verse 7, there is another king, Jesus. And that's true in this chapter as well. Yes, there's King Herod, but there is another king, Jesus Remember how back in the very first verse of this book of Acts, the author tells us about his first book. So you have, you have Luke, who wrote Luke's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Luke, Luke is part one, but Acts is part two. Luke writes in both. and He says that in his first book, he writes about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, which tells us that in this book of Acts, he's writing about all that Jesus continues to do and preach, even though he's exalted to the Father's right hand in heaven. So Jesus is at work in the book of Acts. And so the other king in this chapter is none other than the risen Lord Jesus. So two kings and two kingdoms. And we're going to look this morning at their aims, their methods and their outcomes. So so three points uh, and they do get shorter as we go on. Uh, So firstly this morning two aims, two aims. These two different kingdoms and their kings have two very different aims. What is it that leads King Herod to persecute God's people? What is his aim in life that leads to him doing this? Well, perhaps before we answer that question, we should back up a little bit and ask who this King Herod was. Because if you've been reading through the New Testament from the beginning, from Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, by the time you got to Acts chapter 12, you would have read about two other King Herods. So, so this is the third Herod we read about in the New Testament. And he was Herod Agrippa. Uh, 
he reigned from 41 to 44 AD. So uh, that tells us at this point in the book of Acts, we're roughly 10 years after Jesus has died and risen again. This Herod's grandfather was Herod the Great. Uh, he was the one you might remember from the story that the wise men went to and they said, where is this one who's been born the king of the Jews so that we can come and worship him? Uh, and and he, he said, well, well, when you find him, come back so that, so that I can go and worship him too. But of course, he didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. Uh, and when the wise men didn't come back, when, the, when they tricked him, this Herod killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding region who were two years old or younger. We have a baby boy here under two years old uh, he would have been on this Herod's hit list so that's the first Herod uh, there's the, the grandfather of, of this guy in Acts chapter 12 then the second Herod we read about in the Bible is, is this king's uncle and he was a king when Jesus was a man he was one who was so intrigued by John the Baptist but he ended up beheading John the Baptist. He's the one that Jesus called a fox. Uh, when people come, uh, the Pharisees come and say, Jesus, Herod wants to kill you. Jesus says, go and tell that, that fox and, and so on. This is the Herod who, who was present when Jesus was, was put to death. Uh, that Pilate sent Jesus to this Herod the night before his crucifixion. Uh, and, uh, and this second Herod, along with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. And so this is now the third Herod. So there's Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, and now Herod Agrippa. And he's the third generation of Herod who have tried to kill Jesus or his people. Last Sunday evening we were thinking about how the gospel can break the cycle of generational sin in a family. Families aren't doomed to repeat the pattern of sin from one generation to another. And how, how wonderful it is when God comes in and breaks that cycle. But here you have generation after generation who perpetuate the sin of their fathers. And what motivates them to do so? What was it that motivated these Herods to, to persecute Jesus and his people? Well, part of the answer is, is surely that it's satanic. How much they realised that or not, Satan is behind this. That's particularly clear with Herod the Great and what's been called the slaughter of the innocents when all those babies are killed. It's clearly the seed of the serpent trying to blot out the seed of the woman. That's one of the big themes of the Bible, the seed of the serpent trying to blot out the seed of the woman. Uh, the whole way through, Satan tried to stop Jesus being born. And when Jesus was born, he immediately tried to kill him. So, so that's all going on in the background. Satan is at work. But from a human point of view, much of this is self-interest from these, these kings. 
Herod the Great, that's, that's the grandfather, he's, he's the one whenever Jesus was a baby. He wasn't a true Jew himself. He, he ruled over the Jews, but he was an Edomite. Uh, he, he'd been set in place by the Romans. So to hear that a baby has been born who's been called the King of the Jews, well, you can understand how that would strike fear in the Herod, that, that a true, uh, a true uh, fully Jewish king has been born. Uh, well, well, for Herod, that, that, that means he is threatened. And so it's in his murderous, maniacal self-interest to try and have this newborn baby killed because he wants to protect what he has. And it's the same with Herod Antipas. Why did he arrest John the Baptist in the first place? Well, because John had been telling him that his marriage was adulterous. So why does he arrest John? It's quite simple. John saying, you're committing adultery. Herod didn't want to listen to it, so he arrested him. And then why, why did he kill John? Well, again, purely self-interest. He did it reluctantly, but we're told that because of his oaths and because of his guests, he wanted to keep John alive, but he didn't want to look bad in front of other people. So he promised this, uh, this daughter of Herodias that he would give her anything she asked for. She asked for the head of John the Baptist, uh, and he's, he's crushed in a way, but, but because of his own self-interest, he goes through with it. And that brings us up to Acts chapter 12. We're not told why Herod first laid violent hands on the church and killed James. Was it in the hopes of pleasing the Jews? They are pleased by it. We're told that in, in verse 3. Uh, was that what motivated him in the first place? May well be the case. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that this Herod tried to ingratiate himself with the Jews and especially the Pharisees. So whether he began this persecution for the sole purpose of pleasing them is likely, even though we're not told specifically. But, but we are told in verse 3 that when he saw how this first wave of persecution pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And he did it during the days of unleavened bread. Uh, that is the Passover time. Uh, just as Ramadan today is a time when the persecution of Christians grows stronger. So at the Passover there would surely have been an intensity of Jewish feeling. Uh, and an intensity of hatred of the Christians. Uh, and probably a particular desire on behalf of Herod to keep the Jews happy. What can I do to, to please these Jews? Well, well I'll, I'll arrest another Christian and have him killed. So what is it that explains Herod's persecution of the church here? It's self-interest. We're told that in so many words. He wanted to please the Jews. For, for his own purposes, he wanted to have them on his side. And nothing really changes. John Calvin said that in his day, uh, 500 years ago, uh, this is, I think, the, the anniversary of Calvin's, Calvin's birth, uh, he, he said that the majority of those who persecuted the church in his day were led only by their private concerns. 
And he gives the example of Nero. Uh, Nero, uh, uh, the Roman emperor, became deeply unpopular because he burned the city of Rome, uh, sort of thing that would make you unpopular. Uh, And so to try uh, and remove the pressure from him, he blamed the Christians for it. He crucified Christians. Uh, And that's a, a, a horrific wave of persecution of Christians. And it's purely from Nero's self-interest. He, he's public enemy number one, so he has to shift the blame. <coughs> and if you want to understand the rulers of our world today and the decisions that they make, don't rush to look past self-interest. Don't rush to look past self-interest. Don't assume that there must be some deeper hidden explanation. Now, there might be, but the biblical doctrine of sin teaches us not to forget that the biggest motivation in the life of an unbelieving leader will be their own personal self-interest. Now, that doesn't mean that non-Christians and non-Christian leaders can't do things that on one level are good, honourable, and so on. But if they do, it's due to God's common grace. And if you dig down deep enough, even if they have managed to convince themselves that their number one goal is serving others, if you dig down deep enough, you would find self-interest at work. And often you don't have to dig down that far, do you? Why did Boris Johnson's time as Prime Minister come to an end during the past week? Well, we don't really need to look for some hidden explanation, do we? It might be tempting to at times, but the much more mundane explanation is that Mr. Johnson's rule, at least at times, people I'm sure will disagree to the extent, but at least at times, it was a rule of barely disguised self-interest. A year ago, someone summarised his principles as greed, shamelessness, self-interest, unaccountability, concealment, fabrication and entitlement. And it would be hard to argue with most of them. Ultimately, those closest to him got sick of his self-interested rule. For some, perhaps it's because they had higher ideals for government that they wanted to see integrity or at least the pretense of it. For others, no doubt, it's just their own self-interest as they found themselves becoming part of a political party that was becoming unelectable. Or they saw the writing on the wall and they realised it would hurt their career in the long term to still be associated with the current government. But whether you look at his political or personal life, It's clear that on the list of things that motivates our outgoing Prime Minister, self-interest was at times, and again, not trying to get political, people will, will, will disagree on the extent. I think we can say at times that self-interest was the deciding factor, perhaps more often than not. That might be a mundane way of understanding the decisions that someone in office takes. But the Bible is here teaching us that that is often what motivates rulers. They're acting out of self-interest. 
And as becomes clear from the end of our chapter, Herod's own glory was his number one priority. We see that as he accepted the worship of the people and gave no glory to God. And ultimately that's what motivates the unbeliever. They may do good things, they may go down in history for their courage and self-sacrifice like Winston Churchill or, or Vladimir Zelensky. But if they don't give the glory to God, then they are glory thieves. Uh, And we're not just pointing the finger here because so is every single one of us by nature. We are self-centered glory thieves. You don't have to spend too long in the workplace to see that. With some people it's really obvious. Uh, Maybe you've had a boss with just complete double standards. Who, who won't let those under them do the things that they do themselves. The ones who arrange things so, so they always get the school holidays off so they can spend time with their kids, but, but, but they never let their colleagues get the school holidays off. Or those who, who steal resources from work or, or, or do their own thing when they're on the clock. They're acting out of their own self-interest. And, and, and it's so clear. With others, uh, maybe those we get on with better, there's more evidence of God's common grace in their lives. But when push comes to shove, they're going to look out for number one because self-interest is their biggest motivation. Or there are those people who love to tell you about what they've achieved in life or how they like to help people and so on. Uh, Self-interest in seeking their own glory. Or there's the whole category of what are known as humble brags. I'm not sure if that's a phrase you've come across. Humble brags. When people say something uh, to try and sound humble, but it's actually just an opportunity to boast. For example, someone might, might take a picture of a letter they've received and put it on Facebook and say, well, I was just so touched and humbled to receive this letter from someone thanking me for my anonymous donation. It's a way of letting people know what you've done while trying not to make it sound like a boast. But by nature, we're self-centered glory thieves. That's the world we live in. People do things, they, they seek office for their own glory. But as Christians, we are to be different and we are to be different because our king is so different from Herod. Our king is so different from Herod. What was Jesus' motivation when he was on earth? It was the Father's glory. He says in John chapter 17, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And as Jesus' people, we are to be like him. The kingdom of man aims at the glory of man. And the kingdom of God aims at the glory of God. Two utterly different aims. And yet tragically at times even within the kingdom of God, even within the church, at times we aim for our glory and not God's. 
there's, a, there's an occasion where Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, the Apostle Paul, uh, and he's talking about Timothy, and he says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And however widely we understand that word all, Paul is saying that there is a group, perhaps a sizable group in the church, who just seek their own interests, just like Herod. So that's a, that's a negative example. But there are some wonderful positive examples in the chapter in front of us. There are James and Peter who are clearly not living for their own self-interest. Or they wouldn't have been arrested or killed. But as it is, James becomes the first apostle to be martyred. And Peter is arrested and looks certain to share the same fate. Two men not serving their own self-interests. Then there's a woman. John Mark's mother-in-law who was hosting a prayer meeting in her house. Despite it being a time of intensifying persecution. And then there are are many, the the many ordinary Christians whose names we won't know until heaven who are are gathered in the dead of night to pray earnestly for their brother. Uh, And there's Rhoda and her bravery being entrusted to to answer the the door on a night of this when when evil forces are abroad. And so so this chapter is full of examples, of positive examples of those are seeking God's glory rather than their own interests. So two kings and two kingdoms. Those in the kingdom of darkness at the end of the day are living for their own interests. Those in the kingdom of God are, are and we're often failing to, but we're desiring more and more by God's grace to live for his glory. Not just the glory of God as a vague phrase, but but the glory of God, as Paul writes to the Philippians, that can be seen in genuine concern for the welfare of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if we see these things in our own lives, if God has has changed us so that looking after number one is no longer our top priority, we'll, we'll praise him for his grace in our lives. So firstly this morning, two aims. Secondly, two strategies. Two strategies, and I say these points do get a bit shorter as we we go on. So two strategies. Having seen the two aims of the kings, what are the, the different strategies that they use to try and bring them about? Well, to sum it up, King Herod's strategy is one of force and strength. Whereas King Jesus' strategy is to use the prayers of his people. Look at all the things Herod does in the first four verses. He lays violent hands on the church. He kills James. He arrests Peter. He puts him in prison. He delivers him over to four squads of soldiers. Boom, 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 boom. One thing to the next. He's a man of action. He's always doing things. He's showing his strength in all these ways. How did the church respond in verse 5? Do they, in turn, mobilise, strategize, petition? Oh no. Those things are, are often our 
first response, they may have their place, but, but the first thing the church does here is they pray. The church's response to Herod's targeting of the church's earnest prayer. King Jesus' strategy is to stir his people to pray. Now, of course, he doesn't need our prayers. He could have released Peter without their prayers. God is almighty as Nebuchadnezzar, another king, was once brought to realise many years before this. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done? King Jesus certainly doesn't need our prayers but he chooses to use them. He could do everything by himself but he has chosen to use our prayers and work through them. Uh, I put, it, put a quote in your handout from J.P. Struthers. When he preached in this passage, he said, God does not want to do all things by himself. He wants them to be done for Christ's sake by those whom Christ has redeemed. God wants things to be done for Christ's sake by those whom Christ has redeemed. It's so easy to look on prayer as something that doesn't really achieve anything as not a great use of time whether that's our own personal prayers or or church prayer meetings we're impatient to get on with doing something more active and yet God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people as he puts it in Psalm 50 call upon me in the day of trouble I will deliver you and you shall glorify me If we call on God and he answers, well, God gets the glory, not us. But what if we don't pray? Well, if you're to flip that verse from Psalm 50 around, the opposite is true. Don't call upon me on the day of trouble and I won't deliver you. As a general rule, sometimes God works anyway, but as a general rule... As, as James puts it in the New Testament, you do not have because you do not ask. Don't call upon me in the day of trouble and, and I won't deliver you. But, but do call upon me and I will. Quite simply, if God's people hadn't prayed here, Peter would have died. Now perhaps you say, well, well what about James? Because he did die. Did God not answer his people's prayers for him? Because surely they would have been praying for him too. And that, that's a really important point. God's will for James was martyrdom. And that was actually God's will for Peter too, but just not yet. Do you remember how our Lord said to to Peter, uh, the reference is on your handout, truly, truly, I I say to you, when you were young, you, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Uh, Now that's a bit of a cryptic saying, uh, but John adds his comment in the gospel. This was to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. So Peter is going to be martyred. Jesus has told him that, but not yet. 
And in fact, some could have used that statement of the Lord Jesus as a reason not to pray for Peter's release. You know, it would have been possible for, for the, the Christians to say here, well, well, Jesus said that Peter was going to be martyred and now he's been arrested by a king who, who's just killed another apostle. So it is clearly God's providence for Peter to be martyred at, at this time. So, so there's no point in praying for his release. And again and again, I've heard Christians or seen Christians make decisions not because they're convinced that it's the right decision, but because they think the way that events have come together, it, it clearly must be God's providence. And so the only rule for them is, is to go along with it, even though, they, even though there are things that would make them hesitate. But actually, as Christians, we are told to make decisions based on what God tells us in his word, not because of our reading of providence, which, which is only, if we can read providence at all, it's only read backwards. Uh, as a, despite the fact that, that Herod, the Jews, the realities of maximum security prison... And apparently even providence itself are arrayed against Peter. These Christians pray and God works. So they pray by themselves, no doubt, but they also pray together. From the very beginning of the church in Acts, it has been devoted to prayer. We see in chapter 1, it's the apostles, the women, Jesus' mother and brothers. They're all gathered together, devoting themselves to prayer. In chapter 2, we're told that prayer or the prayers was one of the things that the, the church was devoted to. In chapter 4, after Peter and John are released from prison, they go back to their friends and give a report and they pray for boldness. And surely a chapter like this has to leave us thinking we need to be getting together as a church to pray. And so one practical thing to do would be to pray that more and more God would give us a desire to get together and pray. That God would give us the earnestness and urgency that we see here. That just as they realised that there was nothing they could do to get Peter out of maximum security prison other than to pray. That we too would realise that we have no hope of impacting this community for Christ without the same earnest prayer. So pray that God would give us this desire. That he give us a clear sense of the importance and urgency of prayer. Individual prayer but also corporate prayer as we gather together. James and I are planning to restart the, the session prayer time next month. And one of the things that we, we have agreed as a session to pray for is the prayer life of the congregation. That's something we, we've talked a bit about as a session over the past year. It's a topic I preached on last August. And then we held those five Zoom times of prayer towards the end of the year. And so we do need to think and pray as a session about a time and a format for congregational prayer going forward. But surely our greatest need is that whenever such prayer times are held, God would give us such a spirit of prayer that we would want to be involved. And that even if we don't necessarily see it as a even if we don't necessarily want to be involved, that we would see it as a priority. 
that even if we don't want to pray out loud, that we would still be committed to be there as God's people come together to pray. And just as an encouragement in that, you know, it, it is easy just, just to make us feel guilty when talking about prayer. But realise that these Christians in Acts chapter 12, they're just ordinary people. Their faith was weak. Look at them here. They're praying for Peter's release. And then when Rhoda comes to the door and tells them that, that Peter's standing right there, they don't believe her. Uh, I think this is, this is one of the parts of the Bible that we're allowed to smile at. Uh, they tell her that she's out of her mind. These were not people of extraordinary faith, but they prayed and God answered. Their faith was weak, but they prayed and God answered. So let that be an encouragement. What one practical question sometimes people ask, you know, well, if we're to come together and pray, what is it that we should be praying for? Well, Scripture itself should set our priorities. And so, for example, one of the applications from last week's sermon was that we should pray that the Lord's hand would be on us as a congregation. And so, if we went, went back for example, to having a prayer meeting before the morning service as, as we've had in the past. And someone was to come to that every week and they were to simply say, Father in heaven, please may your hand be on us as a congregation today. In Jesus' name, amen. That would be a tremendous thing. That would be a tremendous thing. You say, I, I don't know how to pray. I think you can pray that. We also have the example here of praying for persecuted Christians. That's something that we can do. But what should we pray for when we come to pray for persecuted Christians? Well, the believers here who are praying in Mary's house are, are clearly pay, praying for Peter's release. But I'm sure they were also praying that if it was God's will for him to die, that he would do so in a way that would glorify God. Do you remember last summer at the time when, when the Americans and the British as well were withdrawing from Afghanistan? Uh, and it was a, a horrific time for Christians there because they knew what was coming. Well, we had friends at that time and they were teaching their children to pray that, that God would help the Christians in Afghanistan die with courage. And that's actually a really good thing to pray for for persecuted Christians. Yes, we can pray that if it's God's will that they'd be released, but that if not, they would die with courage. Boys and girls, you can pray that for, for Christians who are arrested, Christians that are in jail, that, that God would release them out of prison, that God would give them freedom, but if not, that they would die with courage. As Spurgeon puts it here, the Christians here would have been praying that the Lord would deliver his servant or give him grace to die triumphantly. And there is a wider principle here which can apply to praying for those who are sick or, or praying for ourselves if we're sick. Because sometimes you hear of a Christian who's maybe got cancer and they say that they're trusting God for healing or that they're, they're believing God for healing. But actually none of us have a promise of that. God might heal us or a loved one. He can but he might not. And anyway, one day we will all die unless the Lord returns first. 
So yes, we can pray for healing. Just as we can pray for release for prison or that Christians would be spared from execution. But if the aim of those who are in Jesus' kingdom is to glorify God, then surely we should also be praying that whatever happens, that God would be glorified, whether in our illness or our recovery, our life or our death, the persecuted Christians' release or their execution. What our aims are will affect how we pray. If physical health is our biggest priority, that will show itself in how we pray. That doesn't mean that we only pray for spiritual things. Jesus said to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But it does mean that we, we don't only pray for physical things. So we've seen two aims which, which lead to two strategies. And then thirdly, finally and briefly, we have two outcomes. Two outcomes. Firstly, we have the outcome for the guards. Those who have been charged with keeping Peter safe. In verse 19, Herod has them put to death. That is the thanks that they get for serving the wrong king. There is no mercy with the enemies of God. And if you are serving a king other than God, as you ultimately are, even if you're, you're serving yourself, you're ultimately serving the evil one, well, he will use you, but in the end he'll drop you. Just like Herod drops these guards, he'll use you and he will drop you. He will take everything from you and then he'll cast you aside. That is the outcome for the guards. Those who who let Jesus down, he's patient with them. Like Peter, he gives them opportunity after opportunity to repent. These people who Herod thinks have let him down even though they haven't, he doesn't give them a second chance, he just kills them. That's the world. There's no mercy in the world. That's cancel culture. You know, someone says one thing that's wrong. They're cancelled. There's no mercy. There's no forgiveness. That is life in the world. What happens to Herod himself? Well, as he seeks his own glory, he's struck down. His story too ends in death. The world watched in horror on Friday at the news of Japan's longest serving prime minister being shot dead while giving a speech. And here something very similar happened. Herod is giving this oration and he's cut down. Except it's an angel of the Lord who strikes him down. The Jewish historian Josephus recounts the same event with some extra details. Uh, he, he says, uh, I put the quote in your hand out, clad in a garment woven completely in silver so that its texture was wondrous. Herod entered the theatre at daybreak. Uh, then he says, there the silver illuminated by the touch of the first rays of the sun. Think of some of those ruins of the, of the theatres that you see in ancient Rome. Uh, I think of this, in, in its prime, Herod comes in and the sun's just uh, shining off his robes. Uh, it was wondrously radiant and its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. Uh, and we have the rest of the story here in Acts. The people begin shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. The voice of a God and not a man. And Herod, he's down there on the podium and he's struck down. 
is struck down. And that will be the outcome for all those who set themselves up against the one true king. They will face the judgment of God. Whether instantly like Herod or whether it's delayed and it's on the day of judgment. So that's one outcome for, for the guards, for Herod himself. It ends in death. But what's the other outcome? What's the outcome for this other king called Jesus? Well, his word continues to spread. Herod is struck down, eaten by worms and breathes his last. But, and here is the contrast, the word of God increased and multiplied. What does that mean? It means it continues to spread. More and more people were converted. The kingdom of the true king continued to grow. And so as we close this morning, which king are you serving? Which kingdom are you in? Which kingdom are you devoting your life to? Is it the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? And the answer to that question isn't shown by the fact that you're in church this morning. Rather, the answer to that question will be shown by by what your aims in life are, by whose glory you're aiming at. And your aim in life will affect your strategy, it will affect what you see as the priority, and it will affect the outcome. If you're fighting against the true king, the only way your story ends is death and misery. But if you're on the true king's side, as you can be through faith in Jesus, then you're on the winning side. And nothing that happens in this life can take that away from you. No suffering, no persecution. However, the story on earth ends. If you're on his side, that is what ultimately matters. And nothing that you can face this week can take that from you. Amen. Well, let's respond to God's word uh, now by singing from his word that these truths might go deeper into our hearts. Uh, Singing from one of the Psalms that I mentioned, Psalm 50, starting on page 102. Uh, So again, the page number down at the very bottom is 102. It's Psalm 50. We'll sing verses 12 and 13, uh, then go over and sing 18 to the end. So Psalm 50 verse 12, singing of this principle that when we are in trouble we are to call upon God that he might deliver us and that we might glorify him. Verse 13 there, and call upon me when in trouble you will be, I will deliver you so that you then will honour me. And then we're singing in verse 18 to 20 of the outcome for those who reject Jesus as king and try and set themselves up as king instead. Because Jesus is not like them, he will brook no rivals and so he will punish them. And if this language doesn't seem befitting for New Testament Christians, remember that it was the New Testament king Herod who was struck down. Then finally in verse 21, what is our aim in life? Well, if it is to honour God, as the first line of the psalm says... That will affect everything else. He honours me who brings the sacrifice of praise. If we honour God, it will, if we aim at the honour of God, it will affect everything that we do. So Psalm 50, 
12 to 13 on page 102 and then 18 to the end. Tune 206 will stand and sing praise.